All right, so Travis Ziegenbein is our director of student ministry, who is not here. He, wa- he gets name dropped and he walks out with Harper. It's okay. It's fine. You can tell him all the stuff. But if you don't know Travis, uh, he's awesome. He's our director of student ministry. Uh, he's a Fuller Seminary grad. He's currently pursuing ordination in eco. He loves torchies. I don't think I've ever eaten anything with him other than torchies. He loves torchies. But more importantly, he loves Jesus, he loves our students. And he's just a great guy. So I'm telling you this because I need to brag on our staff a little more than I do, but also because Travis loves to share with the students what he calls like his life verse. And it's the perfect verse for us to begin today. So it says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That comes from James chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, The Gospel of John and many other writers in Scripture, uh, they agree with James. In in the Greek, in John's Gospel, he uses this phrase that sounds really weird in English, but it literally means that we are to do the truth. If we go back to the passage in James, I love what comes next. Um, James is wisdom literature, and honestly, he's a little snarky. He says things really directly. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphan and the widow in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now last week, Sabrina, she did just a great job with Greek grammar and verbs in Romans 12. And she's totally right when it comes to understanding the depths of scripture. Um, English verbs and grammar, they don't always tell the whole story. But... It's our language, it's the language we've got, and it is enough to ground us in the gospel of Jesus and to make us disciple-making disciples. So rather than work through the language today, I want to go through a different exercise. We believe that the first key to interpreting scripture is to turn to other scripture. So we use scripture to interpret scripture first, that way we don't get sidetracked and start reading into the Bible things that were never meant to be there. So to help bring Travis's favorite text to life today... Instead of doing the Greek, I want to follow up with the passage Sabrina shared with us last week. I want to show you how those two passages interpret one another, and then I want to go even farther back in time and show you just how the Old and New Testaments are telling the exact same story. So first, let's go back to Romans 12. I'm going to start where Sabrina started last week in verse 9, then continue on to verse 21. We have a lot of scripture today, but that's why we're here. Amen? Amen. All right. So Romans 12, 9. And remember what she said last week. She's right about the Greek verbs. The idea is to do and always keep doing, right? So think about that with every verb that we read here. Love must be sincere. Always keep hating what is evil. Always keep clinging to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Always keep being joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And then Paul goes on to say this, 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a weird phrase. It's a Greek idiom. When I was reading this to a group the other day, somebody asked, is that like kill them with kindness? <laughs> like, <laughs> except without the killing them part, right? <laughs> like, like, save them with kindness. Maybe Paul goes on to explain it. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God for it. So I want to read you something that comes from a scholar named N.T. Wright. Uh, He says this. He says, I suspect that deep down, a lot of us know someone that we would like to get even with. Someone has done something to us and we have allowed that to fester within us. The truth is, at any given moment, there's probably someone who would love to take revenge on us. That desire for revenge is like a deep itch. And sadly, our 24-hour news cycle knows that if we can't scratch that itch ourselves, we sure like to hear stories about someone else who did. And he goes on to say this. He says, this passage declares that we have to find different ways of dealing with the problems. Revenge is fundamentally ruled out. Instead, we are to find creative surprising new ways of dealing with the people who hurt us. When I was reading this this past week, it reminded me of an old story. I want to take you back. Um, In my class on Wednesday night, we've been studying the first part of Genesis. And for the past couple weeks, we've been in Genesis 4. That chapter contains what most people know as the story of Cain and Abel. So the firstborn son of the man and the woman, that couple who began the avalanche of sin that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Their firstborn son murders their secondborn son. He murders his own brother. But when we study the story, we find out that it's not actually a story about murder. The murder is not the point. You see, these two brothers, they bring an offering to God. But when they do, we find this. It says that God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God did not look with favor. And look, there's no real explanation for why this is. There's some suggestions, but we don't really know why God receives and has favor on Abel and his offering, but not on Cain. It just is. And because of it, Cain becomes really angry. God recognizes this and he says to him, he says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That verse, that is the point of Genesis 4. Everything hinges on that one verse. So notice a couple things. God doesn't begin by condemning Cain for being angry. He doesn't condemn his anger. 
but he offers a gentle guiding hand to help him through that anger. You see, the reality is we're not always going to understand God's ways. We're not going to understand what God does. And God understands that. He gets it. So instead of telling Cain, look, kid, just suck it up and get over it. I'm God, you're not, deal with it. He stands next to Cain and offers him guidance as he wrestles with his anger and his confusion at God. And God is telling Cain, look, son, sin is a beast. And it's sitting right there. It's like a lion. It's ready to pounce and it will devour you. He said, but I put your parents and now I'm putting you here in my creation so that you can rule over the order that I have brought out of chaos. So don't let that chaos creep in and begin to rule over you. He's inviting Cain, come to me in your anger. I can handle it, but come to me because the second you walk away from me, that beast is going to pounce and it will have its way with you. So most people are familiar with how the story ends. Cain doesn't turn to God. He turns away. And that beast pounces. And the result is that Cain ends up murdering his only brother. That murder is the consequence of the real point of the story, the real question that the story asks of us. Will we turn to God for help in overcoming whatever it is that desires to rule over us? Or will we allow those desires to consume us? So that avalanche of sin that started with the man and the woman and now their son Cain, it actually continues on through his descendants. And that's what we read about in the rest of the chapter. Cain has a great, great, great grandson. His name is Lamech. And listen to what he says to his two wives. (laughs) By the time man is joined to woman, he will leave his mother and be united and the two will become one. By the time we get to five generations, (laughs) now that one joins two others and, you know, The avalanche of sin, my friends. Okay. Uh, But this is what he says to his two wives. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. If you think the Old Testament law about an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is difficult and tough, then just be really glad that Lamech was never in charge. Some kid wounds him somehow And he takes his life for it. And not only that, but he brags about it to his wives as if he's accomplished some victory. This guy's not even going for an eye for an eye. He's looking for a life for an eye. Lamech's name, actually in Hebrew, it's a play on words. And the Hebrew does this all the time. Uh, The Hebrew word for king is the word melech. Lamech is a play on that word. It's the word melech, but the letters are out of order. It's perverted. It's turned inside out. By the end of chapter four, we have a man with two wives acting as a twisted and perverted king. Cain's great, great, great grandson becomes the poster boy for the avalanche of sin because revenge and vengeance is his gospel. The amazing thing about Genesis four is that the very last verse of Genesis four says that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Somehow, even in the midst of all that, 
people found a way to continue to turn to God. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago about the avalanche of sin. Scripture tells us time and time again that it is always outrun by the grace of God. So we go to the Gospels. In Matthew 18, uh, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, and he's starting to understand, it takes 18 chapters, but he's starting to understand this concept of grace that outruns the avalanche of sin. It says this, it says, Peter comes to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? That's a way of saying completely. And when I read this, I'm so proud of Peter at this moment. He's finally starting to get it. I can just picture him coming up to Jesus. He's like, oh, I've got it. Jesus is going to be so proud of me. He's going to see that I'm being changed. I'm becoming more like him. And then Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. (laughs) Every time I read this, I imagine Peter walking away like this. (laughs) Poor Peter. But Jesus is not being hard on him. All he's doing is bringing the story back to where it started. All the way back to Genesis 4. Because in Jesus, that avalanche of sin that started with Cain and his descendant Lamech is now being undone. It's being overcome. It's being outrun by grace. That cycle of violence and revenge, it's being overcome as God steps into our world to teach us that there is just a better way. There is another way than the way of this world. So back to our passage in Romans, N.T. Wright continues. He says, we must find creative, surprising, new ways of dealing with people who hurt us. This is a huge challenge. I will tell you it is a challenge that cannot be overcome without the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he goes on to say, but saying you shouldn't take revenge is not a way of saying that evil isn't real or that what people do to us doesn't hurt or that it doesn't really matter. Evil is real. It often does hurt. Sometimes what people do to us hurts very badly and has lasting effects, and it does matter. You see, this is not about weakness. This is not about being permissive or dismissive of evil. We are never instructed not to be angry in the face of evil and injustice. God himself has a burning, righteous anger at evil. We are his image bearers. That anger at evil and injustice is not the problem. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Will we take that desire and turn to God so he can guide us through? Or will we turn away and let that desire consume us? Will we be like Cain did? and deceive ourselves? Or will we do the truth, especially when it's really difficult? We are God's image bearers. That means that we are being invited to do the work that God has done to the extent that we are able. So if we're going to overcome evil, if we're gonna do this really hard work, we can't continue to look to things like the evening news or the wisdom of this world to guide us. We have to look to what God has done. And what the gospel tells us is that God has overcome evil, not with more evil, but with love. Not by just inflicting pain and suffering on evil, but by taking that pain and suffering upon himself. It tells us that he bore a burden that we can't bear, taking our sin and our shame to the grave. So now as his image bearers, we can practice that by bearing the burdens of others. 
That is one way we can become a people who can overcome evil, who can choose to turn to what is good, not by taking revenge on others, but by taking their burdens on us. What I love about Jesus is that his rules for righteous living, they're not simply a list of don'ts. It is not a bunch of do nots. Romans 12 is not a list of do nots. It's telling us to do, do the truth, practice righteousness, live with one another in a way that rejects the world and its violent and vengeful ways. Y'all, it's children that come to us with the excuse, but he did it to me first. We can accept that from children, but those are not the words of mature disciples of Jesus Christ. So Paul paints a picture of another way I think he's inviting us to imagine what if there was a different group of people? What if there was a group of people who lived, I don't know, let's say in a community, a planned community, just north of the fourth largest city in the country. And let's say that group of people, they make a willing decision, a willful decision to not just preach Romans 12 and James 1, but to live it. To not just be satisfied with knowing things about God, with knowing the truth, but a people who are resolved to do the truth, to put that truth on display. What if there are people who choose not to repay evil for evil? What if there are people who would choose to even bless those who hate them and persecute them? A people who make real, consistent effort to find peace and understanding with everyone No matter who they are, what they look like, their lifestyle, their race, or even their political affiliation. I reminded that especially today, on Memorial Day. Those men and women who have given their lives for something they believe in, they don't do that just for the people who agree with them, right? Some of you have lived through much more history than I have. And you know that men and women have gone off to war and they have fought for people who hate them for doing it who disagree with everything they stand for, but they don't give their lives just for the select few who are like them and who agree with them. They give their lives for everyone, even in the face of that disagreement, even in the face of that hatred and persecution. Christ hung on the cross as an enemy of sinners so that we could become his people again. What if there were people who choose to celebrate with others? And I mean really celebrate. Like, the church, y'all, should throw the best parties. I mean, we should be celebrating promotions and raises even if we didn't get one ourselves. We should be celebrating engagements even if we're struggling to find a partner for life ourselves. We should be celebrating others' victories even when our life seems to be full of losses. What if there was a people who really feel, I mean really feel the pain and sorrow of someone else's loss? Not just I'm sorry you're going through that, but sit with them in it as if it were their own. What if there were people who don't see themselves as better than anyone, but as the servants of everyone? Because they know that their savior came not to be served, but to serve. And what if that group of people, as they get together, they decide, you know what, we're going to trust God to judge. God decides who's in and out. That's up to him. The Holy Spirit, 
The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin. We just realize that we have a simple responsibility to be a witness to the love and mercy of God, the conviction of our own sin that has led us to the confidence that when we are judged by God that he will see Christ in us and we will be received and accepted and loved by him. If we realize that our responsibility is simple, it's not to judge, it's not to convict, it's to live as examples in this world of how the grace of God outruns the avalanche of sin in our lives. Y'all, I cannot imagine, if they're honest, I can't imagine a single human on this planet that would not be blessed by that kind of community. I mean, who would not want to be a part of a community like that? A community that chooses to take on one another's burdens. To walk with each other through the best and the worst that this life has to offer. To do it together, rib to rib, side by side. When I look at scripture, then I look at the world, I don't understand the world, which I think means that I'm on the right track. (laughs) But one thing that I don't understand about the world is that it's more connected than it's ever been. We are more connected to more people than we have ever been. Then why are we so alone? Our students are more connected to each other in the world than they have ever been. Why are they tragically alone and fighting real depression because of it? Why are we so alone? I think it's because Romans 12, all of scripture, it's not what's guiding our daily lives. We have given that voice a back seat. And in the front seat right next to us is Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and whatever. Our world is turning to everything other than God to teach us how to live as God's image bearers in God's creation, as a community of people called by God to put his good news on display. And all of those other voices are literally tearing us apart. And I think the danger is that some Christians, some churches have started to let that happen to them. When we give in to the avalanche of sin, we're beginning to forget that God's grace outruns it because other voices are louder than God's. And all the while, all the while this is happening, God is still right there. He has never moved. He has never changed. He is still right there offering that comforting and guiding hand just like he offered to Cain to remind us, y'all, it's a beast and it's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. It wants you. And you must rule over it. And God is offering us that same guiding hand. He is saying, I will teach you how. So this week, I want to invite you to do two things. Uh, Encourage you, challenge you, whatever is the most effective word for you. Uh, First, join us this summer and let's read through the Bible together. If we're going to learn to do the hard work of responding creatively and lovingly to the difficult things and the difficult people in our lives, then we have got to have an active relationship with God's word and let it be our guide. We have got to put that word back in the front seat. So on Tuesdays, uh, Sabrina is going to start a reading group that's going to spend 100 days with the 100 defining stories of scripture. So that reading plan, it's about 10 to 15 minutes a day. Uh, If you spend 10 to 15 minutes a day watching cable news or following social media feeds, you can balance that out with scripture. 
Um, on Thursdays, I'm going to start a group that's going to go cover to cover in 100 days. So that is every single word. And it's intense. I'm not going to lie. It's about 45 minutes to an hour of reading a day. And if I may be so bold, if you're spending an hour a day with cable news or following social media feeds, you have the opportunity to use the summer to balance that out with God's good word. I'm not saying that we can't listen to the voices of the world. I'm saying that we need to interpret them through scripture and not the other way around. It is a gift. Let's use it. We're trying to provide some opportunities for us to do that together. The second thing that you can do this summer, find one person in your life. Maybe it's somebody from work, somebody from school. Maybe it's somebody who lives on your street that as far as you know, doesn't know the hope and mercy and grace of God and invite them to be a part of our community. But... I don't mean just bring them to church. Start by bringing the church to them. I want this church to grow and to thrive. I'm sure that we all want that. But more importantly, I want the influence of Christ's church to reach into our villages, down our streets, and into our neighbors' lives so that they can find the hope and mercy and forgiveness that we have found. And y'all, that's not going to happen just because we have great music and a decent sermon here. That is not the stuff that's gonna convince people of the love and mercy of God by itself. That's gonna happen because God's people will take it upon themselves, not just to bring their neighbor to church, but bringing the church to their neighbors. When the people of God practice the truth, do the truth, as James says, when we are determined to allow Romans 12 and the rest of scripture to guide the way we react and respond to the world around us, the world will begin to see the church in a new way. If they don't see any difference between the church and whether it's left or right politics or whatever the system of this world happens to be, if they see no difference, then what's the point? But if they see a people practicing something radically different than everything they hear around them, that is going to invite some questions. And they will begin to see the church in a new way. They will come to know what so many of you know that it is beautiful, it is a gift to be a part of a community that loves you. That doesn't judge you the second you walk in the door, it just wants to care. A community that will stand rib to rib, right by my side through the good and the bad. A people who will pray with me, cry with me, celebrate with me, pick me up when I don't think I can go on one more day. A people who will tell me the truth in love, but from a humble perspective as people who have been told the truth in love and that truth has transformed their lives. A people who will point me to grace and mercy. A people who will point me to Christ. I am convinced that putting Jesus on display for the world around us, it is the only way to attract people to the church. For 30 or 40 years, the church has tried to use every tool that we can imagine to attract people to come into our building and we have forgotten the one thing that actually works putting on display the love and mercy of Jesus. If we do it, they will come. The influence of the church will reach into our villages, down our streets, into our neighbors' lives because the church will no longer be a burden to them because it will begin to bear burdens for them. And that will be good news to a lost and hurting people who are simply trying to find another way. Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, we are grateful for the truth, the good news, uh, that you have done for us what we can't do for ourselves. Um, That through the cross and your resurrection, you have taken on our sin and our shame and you have made a way that we can be reunited with you. So God, in the way that we can, help us to practice bearing the burdens that we can bear for one another as a way of showing them at least an example of your grace and your love. It's not meddling in people's lives. It's taking them seriously, listening, hearing them, walking step by step with them through the best and the worst that life has to offer. So God, give us the courage and the strength to do it, to hear your call, to trust you all the way, to know that it's the power of your spirit guiding us. So let the power of that spirit make us brave, make us bold, make us loving and kind, peaceful and patient, joyful, gentle, forbearing. Help it to make us the people that you're calling us to be so that we can be a part of calling the rest of your people to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.